Hello, welcome to Famous Lost Words. This is our weekly dive into an incredibly deep archive of interviews. I'm Christopher Ward. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. You know, it's funny. I was driving around the other day and I'm going, I'm listening to interviews for this show. <laughs> it's your want to do. Oh, yeah. It's, it's crazy. And I'm going, ah, that's not so good. No, oh, no, that's kind of boring. Man, this guy is putting me to sleep. And then all of a sudden, I hit upon this interview with Keith Richards. <laughs> it's great. Very late 60s or very early 70s. And it is just fantastic. And it reminds you how great Keith is as an interview subject, especially mm-hmm. when he's completely coherent, which he is in this interview. So <laughs> we can't wait to present it to you today on Famous Lost Words. Well, I now me, I kind of love all Keith Richards interviews. Sure. Regardless of what state of mind he's in. Because yes. there's something... Well, first of all, he's just a great character. That's right. And he's never out of character. He's mm-hmm. always Keith. Yeah. And sometimes underneath that sort of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the gruff grumble and, and you know, all of that, there's some wonderful insights. Yes, for sure. And he's very direct about things. Mm-hmm. He's kind of both a complete open book and at times this total self-mythologizing rock star. Yeah. And I love both sides. Did you read his book, speaking of? Oh, yes. His biography, uh, autobiography called Life, is one of the best rock autobiographies ever written. Yeah. Now, I always like to skip ahead the first 50 pages or so really? for, for books like that. I don't. I read them, but I kind of read them very quickly. Oh, you mean and, the I was born at a very young yes. age part? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. Yes. The one thing I remember about the book is basically he's saying, I haven't died from a drug overdose because I always use the very best and very purest drugs. Oh, so it wasn't mixed up with a lot of other stuff. That's what I remember from the book. I hope I'm remembering it right and quoting him right. But that was the pure Keith, as it were. Well, there's a lot of memories in that book. And one of the things he says, essentially, is he remembers it all. But I, I have to put some doubt on that. Yeah, for that sure. Notion. So, yeah. So Keith Richards coming up. We also have an interview with Little Richard that you did. It is fantastic. It's very short. But boy, oh boy, does he leave us laughing with a couple of remarks. And he's one of the real true legends of the Mm -hmm. game. And also coming up on When Rock Stars Attack, we've heard from him before. We're actually going to hear from him on next week's episode. But this is When Rock Stars Attack, and it's Burton Cummings. And boy, does he tear strips and does he name names. It's very, (laughs) very funny. And it's pure 100%, as I like to say, full frontal Burton. (laughs) Ooh, I know. And we're also going back to 1987 with a great chat with Dave Stewart of Eurythmics talking about Annie, talking about his own production work. It's fantastic. All right. So back to Keith Richards. Now, the Rolling Stones have never been looked upon as this group of super accomplished players, Mm -hmm. but rather as components in something that is greater than the musicians, as Keith explains here. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm knocked out, you know, there's all these incredible musicians around, you know. Mm. But as bands, it's another thing, man, because I don't... I wish they could stick together, man. There's people with, I mean, it takes a long time to get a band, real band together, with a sound of its own, and everybody... It takes a really long time, and it, and, it, and it takes longer than most people give credit for. I mean, people don't realize that the Beatles were working from 56, 57 until 62 together, and that makes them a an integrated band, you know, yeah. Yeah. and we were working for like three years before, right. you know, and, and as much as I dig like bits of what they all do, you know, and I yeah. really dig Ginger's drumming, I really dig Eric's guitar, yeah. but I'd really like to hear them with like four cuts that they keep together with for like uh, 
four or five years and then sort of yeah, playing yeah. because it's obvious that they're playing with people that they dig on a musician sort of level but they don't they can't get along with mm. as a person you know and that way there's there's obviously a blocking communication you know he's got a very interesting take on the difference between the Beatles and the Stones I think it's impossible for them to do to they I mean Mick said this before and I say it again the Beatles, I mean, although, I mean, we know they've drawn the biggest crowds that, I mean, in their time on those American tours and they've made, you know, but primarily they're really a recording group, you know, mm. and that's really what they've got. They've passed their peak, I think, even before sort of uh, they were famous here of being very good on stage. Mm. I mean, they just, they're, they're a recording band, you know, mm. and... And our scene was the concerts, you know. I mean, a lot of our records were, like, very sort of roughly right. made, you know. Mm. But, uh, I mean, we were kicking it every night up on the stage, you know, and that was our scene, you know, to mm. sort of uh, really have a good time with the audience, you know. They've been playing for a lot longer, as I said, than, mm. than we have, you know. They've And so they may have got completely fed up with playing on stage, you know, because they were doing those German clubs for mm. seven hours a night, you know, that's enough to destroy anybody, you know. <laughs> And uh, we, although we've been playing for three years, we'd still felt that we were only just sort of getting it together, you know, so we still had plenty to do on stage. You know? I mean, I think we still have, you know. And of course, he's proven right there because the Stones went on to become not only a, a legendary studio band, but far more legendary on the road. They've taken that, they still exist today, and it's so surprising and so amazing that they can do what they do and still do it very, very well. I've seen a lot of Stone shows. They've never let me down. Yeah. I've seen one, the Steel Wheels tour. Yeah. It was excellent. It like, was I loved it. It was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Keith displays his candor uh, with some observations about original Rolling Stone, Brian Jones. What's difficult with those situations that it's always sort of so unevenly balanced. It's always usually one cat that gets uptight with everybody else, you know. And so and when you're working on tour, man, you sleep about three hours a night, you know, for the years. You haven't got time to look after that other cat and sort of humour him and, uh, all the time. You know, I mean, this, I mean, we all know we're talking about Brian, you know, mm. because that was the scene. Brian had a real touch of. Uh, he just couldn't make it with uh, Mick or myself for a period, you know, and it was mm. really bad. I mean, it was a shame, you know. Mm. But I mean, it was it was okay. I mean, about '66, we got ourselves together and, mm. and we understood each other much more. You know? mm. But there was this period when we were working where we were just driving each other crazy, you know. I mean, I've always, I used to tell Brian, man, you're not going to live to see 30, you know. I mean, there, I mean, I've had a couple of other friends like that, you know, that have died in their early 20s, you know. And, and it was just that you just knew that they were never meant to get old, you know. Mm. There, I mean, there are people that are just meant to die young, you know, for some. Mm. And Brian, I think, had done everything that he wanted to do for himself, you mm. know. He'd gotten himself completely out of that world that he was brought up in, you know, mm. which he... Hated, you know, no. Yeah. And but it wasn't a death wish sort of a thing, you don't think, you know? No, no. I mean, he didn't want it really, you know? No, I and mean, it was very strange because when we had this talk with him the last time we saw him about the stones, you know, mm. and, he, and he said, well, he said, I feel much better already. He said, I think, you know, now that I know it's over and I've got to do something now, mm. uh, I've got to get my own thing together, I feel much better, you know? And, and he kept used to be calling up here and everything, mm. saying, you know, do you know where I can get a hold of this musician and that musician? He was really sort of mm. into mm. starting a whole the new thing, thing, you know. Yeah. And I was like, I thought, well, fantastic, you know. And then we were at the session one night. 
to the studio. Mm. And uh, somebody just called out and said he was dead. You know? mm. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. As I say, and Mick and I suddenly realized that we'd sort of been one of those things you always sort of expect. Wow, you know? Mm -hmm. Talking about how it just wasn't going well. It reminds me of that clip we ran uh, when uh, Pete and Roger were talking about Keith Moon from The Who and nice. how they weren't really surprised when it happened. And it's just one of those things where, boy, oh, boy, you feel like it's almost inevitable. And uh, and the, the Brian thing, it's, it, it's so tragic, but writing was kind of on the wall. Did you see the movie Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll? I haven't. I think maybe oh. I've seen highlights of it on YouTube, but nothing more than that. It's Keith Richards' tribute to Chuck Berry. Right, but doesn't Chuck treat him very badly? Chuck is a little hard to get along with, <laughs> to say the least. There's, You know what? There's some great moments in that film, and it is really, really worth seeing. Okay. Um, here he talks about Chuck's music and how it's part of the foundation of the Rolling Stones sound. Mick and I were just more into sort of the Chuck Berry thing, you know, mm. which I've always dug very much because, I mean, I think that some of this is a sort of classical mixture of um, blues and uh, rock and roll and country mm. music somehow. It's, it's because that's what rock and roll really is, is a sort of funk, as a sort of fusion of blues and a bit of gospel and mm. white country music, you know. I mean, it's all sort of interrelated. Mm. And it's when people come up with the right kind of mixture that it really yeah, hits it. And I mean, and he did. And I mean, lots of other people have since. And I mean, that's the sort of thing I sort of work on all the time. You know? So I don't know, Tom, what your favorite Rolling Stones song well, Maybe you're going to tell me. Oh, uh, it's either Sympathy for the Devil mm -hmm. or Gimme Shelter. I think, mm. I think Gimme Shelter, but you know, every once in a while, someone will put on Honky Tonk Women and I just go, <laughs> oh man, that is so good. Oh, Brown Sugar. Oh my God. Where are we going to stop? Like, let's stop at Tumbling Dice. Okay. Oh, Tumbling Dice. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. But then I love stuff like Wild Horses and Angie too. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, I don't we... like, I don't like the ballads. I don't quite, oh, you yeah. know what song I don't like? Sorry. Ruby Tuesday. Sorry, I just can't handle that hippy-dippy stuff from the Stones. I like it from other bands, but not from them. Okay. Now, Keith has always said that the Wait, opening riff... she's a rainbow. I hate she's a rainbow as well. You must love Dandelion, too, but we won't... No, we, let's move. Now, Keith has said that the opening riff to Jumpin' Jack Flash is his personal favorite. Oh, good one. Mm-hmm. Here he talks about the reception of the song on both sides of the Atlantic. You know, I mean, so even if... I mean, Jumping Jack Flash did very... We really made Jumping Jack Flash for England mm. because we wanted to sort of establish ourselves, like, at least keep things going here while we sort of sorted out our other problems, you know. Mm. And it did here. It was number one here and it was cool and that's really all we wanted. Mm. And it was quite big in other places. In America, it didn't do too well. I didn't really... I sort of hoped it would, but I didn't think it would somehow because it was a bit... You can sometimes gauge things, you know, that are right for England, but they're not right for America. You know? Wow, I didn't realize it wasn't that big over here. You know what? I bet you it was bigger in Canada than it was in the States. It was big for me. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, oh, yeah. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. he, he has a fascinating take on one of the band's most enduring songs. Satisfaction. It's such a simple song, you know, that it's sort of, I don't know, it's very frustrating in a way because, I mean, you think, well, I have, mm. you think, well that's easy, man, you know. Mm. Mm. You know, but then you come to write something as simple again, I mean, yeah. I mean, satisfaction, I mean, I didn't even want it on an album when we cut it because I thought it was so sort of uh, corny, you know, the sequence of the song, you know, because I was very hung up about chords and writing at the time. Mm. And 
it just passed over me completely what it was really all about you know? mm. until I until I sort of heard it on disc like about a month after we cut it you know and I suddenly realized that it was there it is amazing how many artists say they just have no idea when a song is going to be a big hit single and that's just one of those cases yeah it's always something that they just tossed off without thinking yeah. about it but maybe that's part of the magic huh? yeah for sure yeah now when let it bleed came out in 1969 Surprisingly, it did not include the Stones' recent massive hit, Honky Tonk Women. Instead, as you probably know, it included a wacky country take on the song called Country Honk. Keith explains how that happened. I've hung around with uh, a couple of country players uh, last summer, Graham Parsons from the Burrito Brothers. Mm. And somehow, somewhere, it rubbed off because around Christmas time, Mick and I went to Brazil on this ranch and, this, and for some reason this ranch, there's a cattle ranch you know for all the world like Arizona there you know and I s suddenly got into cowboy songs you know <laughs> and we played and in fact there's a the card on the album we've done Honky Tonk Women the way we wrote it and it's just a straight sort of Jimmy Rogers number you know sort of Great. or Hank Williams sort of sound you know? mm -hmm. and it was only when we were fooling around with it and we were trying to make it a little funkier mm -hmm. and I was fooling around with the tuning on the guitar that I got it Mm. And we got it into that thing that is the single, you know, mm. which uh, sort of just knocked us out. And we thought, wow, you know, that has to be a single. You know? Yeah. But I never thought for all the life that it would be like as big as it has been. Yeah. You know, it's really amazing. All right, so on to the tough stuff. All Among right. his many colorful observations about rock and roll and the accompanying lifestyle, one of the most memorable was Keith's statement that, I don't have a drug problem, I have a police problem. I've never used to have any beef against sort of uh, cops or anything. I didn't. I used to really think I used to be like naive, you know, mm. about the cops. So especially the English ones, I just think they were very sort of straight people, you know. Mm. And a few things along the line have made me think differently now. Mm. Uh, but um, it's really it's it's been. I've never seen such bad behaviour from anybody, man, in all, except from the cops in all those years that we were touring and. Uh, up to now, you know. I mean, I've, they're the most, the worst behaved people I've ever seen. I, if I've ever seen anybody sort of uh, deliberately try and raise a riot, it's the cops, you know. Mm. I mean, the things that they would do at, our, at concerts mm. all over the world, I'm not talking about England or America or anywhere, because Warsaw looked the same to me, with the amount of cops and armoured cars. I remember exactly the same scene in Long Beach, and it was, and it was very funny because there's a scene I remember from Long Beach coming out of that place, and it was a bloodbath, and there were cops with steel helm white steel helmets, and there was a skyscraper in the background, and an armoured car. And as we were coming out of this theatre in Warsaw, I had exactly the same scene right in front of us. It was exactly the same setup. you know, it was like being... It was really strange, you know, and I thought, well, there's just no difference anywhere, man. Yeah. It's the same scene, they're just, you know... And everywhere, man, the cops have been just determined to sort of start trouble, you know, and the places, and it's what's amazed me is that in England, you see, the cops have been staying away from these big uh, festivals, and uh, and everything's been amazingly cool, you know, and yeah, I mean, it's true. obviously appointed at something, because yeah. um, in America, where they've had the cops sort of, uh, yeah. you know, reinforcements because there's so many, I mean, the trouble started, you know, yeah. so there, there's got to be some sort of lesson sort yeah. of learned from that somewhere, you know. Wow, boy. <laughs> And he's saying basically it's a, the police problem is around the world, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it is interesting. One of the f first things he says in that clip is how 
he used to view the police as this kind of benign force. Yeah. Right? And then uh, after the many dealings that they had and problems that were yet to come for Keith with the police. Well, and in particular in Toronto. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever seen Mike Myers' impression of Keith Richards? Yes. Is that the one he did on SNL? Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> I love that. I think it is just so ridiculously yeah. funny. But mm-hmm. I think he might have topped it when Mick was on the show and Mick played Keith and Mike played Mick. Oh, man. Now, have you seen that? Yes. Yeah. I don't know if it's on YouTube, but that is worth digging yeah. around for. Yes. He is funny. It's always funny on SNL when they have, an, uh, when they have one of their cast members do an imitation of... Of someone, and then of course they have that someone on the show. Like I think Eddie Murphy right. next to Stevie Wonder, and you kind of, how do you have the stones <laughs> to do that right in front of a person? Little Richard, a name not known to everyone in you know among pop music fans, especially of today. Mm-hmm. Um, AKA Richard Penniman, that's right? his real name is truly one of the founding fathers of rock and roll. He was one of the first inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they opened the doors in 1986. Mm -hmm. He started performing at the age of 14. He worked in traveling medicine shows. He worked on the Chitlin Circuit before forming his own band. So the Chitlin Circuit was kind of a black circuit, a circuit for black musicians in the South. Is that correct? Yeah, the South and the Midwest, I believe. Yeah. Okay. his first hit was a song called Tutti Frutti. Oh, Rudy. In 1955. I think they had to clean up the lyrics a little bit. Yes. His, Richard's work was a little suggestive, shall we say. <laughs> anyway, during the segregation era, it's interesting to know, he was one of the first performers to draw black and white audiences to the same venue for the same show. Now, they were segregated still. Like, usually the white audience was downstairs and the black audience were in the balcony. Yeah. But what happened is that then they came together to dance. Awesome. I that know. That is great. After Tutti Frutti, he had a string of incredible, iconic rock and roll hits. Long Tall Sally, Rip It Up, Good Golly, Miss Molly. Mm-hmm. So when I met Little Richard, and I was thrilled to meet Little Richard. I bet. I asked him about his continuing influence. The music of Little Richard really lives on in so many different ways. Not only That's the right. songs that you perform, but also through a lot of different artists. Now, I saw Prince here last week, mm-hmm. and I saw little bits of James Brown. I saw some Jimi Hendrix, and I also saw a lot of Little Richard. That's right. That's right. Uh, in fact, uh, wh- when I saw Prince, I see a lot of Little Richard and a little Jimi Hendrix, because Jimi Hendrix was me. He came from me. He was my guitar player. You That's know, at right. At the age of 18 and 19, his real name is Maurice James. He was a part of me. Uh, and uh, when I see Michael, I see uh, uh, James Brown, Little Richard, and Jackie Wilson. Yes. That's what Michael Jackson is. And when I see Boy George, I see Little Richard. When I see David Bowie, I see Little Richard. Uh, when I see a whole lot of them, I see Little Richard, you know. Uh, and it's a joy that I'm still alive to see some of these. So things. they're doing you proud then? Oh, yes, yes. And what do you think about the state of rock and roll today? Overall, is it in good shape? Uh, I think that it's back where it used to be. You know, when I hear Beat It, I hear Lucille, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, when I hear, uh, uh, not Beat It, when I hear uh, Billie Jean, Billie I hear Jean. Lucille. When I hear Beat It, I think about Rip It Up. Uh, uh, not the music is just like it, but Michael, my songs was named after girls and different things. You know, Lucille, Billie Jean. Yeah. Rip It Up. Well, you know, he takes a lot of credit there, but he makes a good point. Like when you first saw Prince, you kind of going, man, that's that's little Richard, you know, and of course I thought. Yeah, 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 exactly. Wow. That's great. Well, and and coming from anybody else, those would seem like very extravagant claims. Mm -hmm. But let's remember, 
Jimi Hendrix was in his band. I mean, you can back this up. And the Beatles opened for Little Richard in the UK and at the Star Club in Germany. And he taught Paul McCartney some of his sort of trademark vocal tricks, like the woo in the uh, song. Never saw his, dance with yeah. another. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry well, that, about that, folks. That was good, and we will never do that again, I promise. <laughs> we promise. Um, yeah, and he influenced uh, artists who were more or less his contemporaries, like Sam Cooke, mm-hmm. James Brown, Otis Redding. David Bowie, of all people, said that when he heard Tutti Frutti, he heard God. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> leave it to David. So the next question that I asked him, which I, I'm gonna, we're going to leave the question on okay. the interview, was one that I had waited years to, to pose. One of the most exciting rock and roll shows that I ever seen was 15 years ago. Yeah. And it featured a lot of the greats of rock and roll. It featured John Lennon, The Doors. Yes. And a performance by Little Richard that absolutely amazed me. Do you have any memories of that event? Uh, oh, yes. I had on a glass suit. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that day? Yes, do, you, do you remember seeing uh, John Lennon and yes, Yoko performing? Yes, I remember seeing John Lennon and Yoko, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley. That's right. And, and all of them. I remember seeing them. It was a fantastic show. A lot of people. That was that was a, a real sort of peak in the revival. Yes, of, uh, it was. And, and they made it? this movie called Sweet Toronto, and then they changed the name to Keep On Rocking. Right. Yes, I remember that very much. Now I understand that you will not be performing again. Is that true? No, I'm not in the performing business anymore. I'm going to, I just, my new book is out on the market, uh, The Life and Times of Little Richard, all over this country and other countries. Uh, I'm just going to travel and I want to be a consultant for my new movie that is going to be coming out very soon. Do you miss performing? Do you miss getting up there and the excitement and the response of the fans? Uh, Yeah, I miss some of it. You know, I can't help. I've been in it all my life. But I'm glad to be out of it, too, so I can look in on it. That was such an incredible, incredible show. And you did something I've never seen anybody else do. At the end of the song, you'd say, did you like it? Do you want to hear it again? And then, bam, they go right into the song one more time. That's right. Is that a special performance yes, technique? Yes, it was. I just want to, you know, anything I do, I would ask the girl, did you like it? Uh, whoever, did you like it? If you like it, I'll do it again. If you don't, I ain't going to give you no more. Had <laughs> <laughs> a boy, little uh, Richard. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's great. And that was a fantastic show. Yes. That, you, that infamous uh, rock and roll revival show. That's right. Well, tell us a little bit more about that, because we talked about that a few weeks ago with our mm-hmm. John Lennon segment. So, Oh, tell me a little more about that. Well, about that's him. the one where Lennon flew in with Clapton mm-hmm. and Yoko and the, and the band, and they practiced um, on the plane right. for the first and only time. Right. And the, the Doors were the headlining act. But it, it was called the Rock and Roll Revival, and there were all kinds of oldies acts that Little Richard makes, uh, makes reference to there. So it was, a, it was kind of a stylistic mashup, but somehow it made sense, and of course it went on to become this legendary event. Yes. Was it... I know it lives on in kind of infamy and has a legendary status, but was it a great concert by yeah, your memory? Oh yeah. Was it? Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, um, I think my perception of it may have been influenced by... <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Outside influences, but... Um, sure. Yeah, um, I just remember, like, after Lennon, I just thought, well, what... What else can happen? Yes. And then it was the Doors who, you know, I th- were at the you know peak yeah. of their they fame. They blew the Doors off the place. <laughs> I mean, Jim Morrison was like hurling himself down on the stage, and I, you know, it was yeah, it was wild. And wasn't uh, Yoko wailing from the stage too? Well, yeah, that's the thing where Yoko, she got inside a bag. Yeah, and I guess they tucked a microphone in the bag with her, and she over and over again just kept saying, "Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, John, don't worry, Yoko." 
Don't worry, Kiyoko. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's as weird as it sounds. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. Great memories. And, you know, I have a thought about why Ri- Little Richard performed each song twice. His songs were so short. That yeah. was the only way he could fill out a 45-minute set, I would that's assume, right. right? Yeah, unless he did 22 songs. <laughs> that's right. You're listening to Famous Lost Words. And if you've missed an episode although I'm sure you haven't. Uh, they're all archived on the iHeartRadio app and on iTunes. You know, and if you go back to episode number one, you're going to hear a clip at the very end of the show with Burton Cummings when Burton and the Guess Who were given the Lifetime Achievement right. Award at the Juno Awards and their their speech was cut off. They never actually got to make a speech. And Burton's comments are really good. They're very heartfelt. He was devastated and all that. So now, leap forward to this episode many, many months later, and we've got Burton perhaps not at his kindest. <laughs> and this is from uh, 1973. Right. He writes the song Glamour Boy. So this, by the way, this is an episode of When Rock Stars Attack, okay? Burton Cummings edition. He writes the song Glamour Boy. And boy, oh boy, does he ever let rip when he's asked what or who the song is about. It's, it's, it's uh, superstars in general. Basically, it's a slam at all of the, the uh, theatrics that are going on now that are being passed off uh, under the heading of music, which I disagree with totally. Uh, showbiz is still showbiz, but most people don't have a discerning enough ear to realize where where theater stop or where theater starts and music stops. And people are, you know, are saying, "Well, don't you think Alice Cooper are the most phenomenal musicians in the world?" Well, they're not. You know, they 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 don't play very well at all. But the thing is. There is so much of that going on. I don't know, it started with, I hate using labels, but glam rock was the first way I heard it described. And then there are so many costumes and uh, tricks and devices, but yet it's still coming under the general heading of music, which I disagree with. I I wouldn't care if, you know, I would rather just hear a band that goes out and and rocks along, you know, that, that really plays. And that's basically, that's, that song is just a slam against that whole syndrome. It's not about anybody in particular, but it's, it's like David Bowie, Mark Bolan, Alice Cooper, people like that. Oh, man, that's funny. So he says he doesn't want to name names, and then he proceeds to name names. He slams yeah. David Bowie, Alice Cooper, and Mark Bolan. Burton is delightfully direct. Because, <laughs> you know, so many people are so cautious about what they say, but yeah, just go for it. You know what I think it is? Burton is so musical. And he's so, like, he is so proud of his ability. He takes his musicianship mm-hmm. very seriously. Right. And when you see him play, his skill on a keyboard is second to no one. And he's so gifted, but it took a lot of hard work, right? So he has that kind of old school dedication to his craft. Yeah. So when he sees these people who he sees are clowns, like Alice Cooper, like David Bowie, and like Mark Bolan, he dismisses oh, them out of hand. Do you know what we're going to get as a result of that comment? Well, I know, but I don't believe that. And of course, those no. artists and I and I would I'm certain that Burton would walk back those some of those comments mm-hmm. about what he felt. But at the time, you could see that he was just kind of seething, and you can hear it. He's seething with these people who he doesn't believe are good musicians. And but is of course, it that or is it just the fact that there's more emphasis on image mm-hmm. and look? 
and all that surrounds it, the hoopla surrounding it, as opposed to just getting up and playing your song. Sure, and there's a little bit of old guy get off my lawn there, and, and it's funny because he's <laughs> yeah. he's not. It is he, show business. He's not that old, so it is funny. But anyway, yes, <laughs> perhaps one day we'll get an opportunity to chat with Burton and say, yeah. "Hey, Burton, do you still feel this way and play that clip for him?" I know you've told us, you've said before, you can't play the past against the uh, against the artist, but that's kind of part of the fun. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and my co-host is Tom Joking. Hey, Christopher. Okay, so right now we're going to go back to November of 1987. Eurythmics have just released uh, their next album called Savage. It has a few hits on it, including I Need a Man. So mm. they're still cranking out the hits. And here's a great chat with Dave Stewart, and he talks about so many different topics. Here he is in conversation with Marilyn Dennis. Are you pleased with the sound of Savage? Well, Savage is definitely the best album we've ever made. Why is that? Because it was the um, the easiest, because of all the things we've been through before and all the experiments, we've um, managed to really sort of, I don't know, get into a, a stage now, now where Annie doesn't really need to walk in the room or check anything she can just walk in and sing straight on the mic without even listening to what I've been doing it, before you see it, we were psychic anyway when I would write something and she would write some words and it would fit automatically mm-hmm. well nowadays there's one track on the album called I Need You why I play the acoustic guitar she's never heard me play it before and I've never heard what she's saying and that take is actually her singing and me playing for the first time a new song and um so the whole album was a bit like that, very sort of spontaneous. There is a single uh, coming out probably this week, which is called... I Need a Man. Yeah, and uh, where did that song come about? Who wrote it? Who put well, it together? Well, Annie and I always write everything between us. Mm-hmm. Um, this song, I Need a Man, it's quite funny because actually while, while Annie was doing the lead vocal for it, uh, Mick Jagger was coming to visit us and uh, she was snarling and doing these kind of Mick impersonation really (laughs) and he was egging her on how is it that you and Annie have such a good relationship do you think I mean let's face it when there are uh, more than one heading up a a band it's hard to keep it democratic don't you think Mm. Uh, are you that close that it's not difficult well we both realize our uh, our different kind of potentials and for instance I get to do all of this sort of work that I think is really good fun, which is, you know, rehearsing the band, playing with the band, recording. I mean, in this album, Annie was in the studio about four days, you know, just to do our vocals, and the rest of the time I could experiment however I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so then I don't interfere with her when she's doing photo sessions or things like that. Or, you know, it just works out great. I mean, remember, we used to live together for about five right. years. Yes, yeah, I do remember that. Mm-hmm. So um, we ironed out a lot of that then. <laughs> Which is still re- really unique if you think about it. I mean, li- you live with somebody, mm. you guys break off your relationship, and then you become successes together. Yeah, well, my ex-wife runs the fan club, so that's no... <laughs> <laughs> you are a friendly guy, <laughs> really. Let's talk about those other people that you worked with uh, between Eurythmics uh, albums. Mm. Uh, of course, um, most recently, Mick Jagger. Yeah, that was great fun. We still have an ongoing kind of relationship where um, all the people I work with really we don't sort of set a time and go in the studio it's all random recordings around the world really and then you know we have to fix a date to sort of mix them or finalise them so with Mick that uh, date was in Barbados where we actually uh, 
finalised some of the recordings we'd been making in the back of my house. And since then, you know, we've recorded another couple of tracks since this new album. Um, yeah, he's, he's a great man, you know, he's really inspired all the time, which, considering the amount of albums he's made, mm-hmm. is unbelievable. He just has songs he writes every day, just about. And so I had great fun working with him. I've just recently done a single with Brian Setzer from the Stray Cats, which was great fun too. He's a fantastic guitarist. You have worked with a lot of people. Mm. If you could put together your own super group, hmm. yeah. who would Dave Stewart have in the lineup? Well, it's, when I look back, I never really think about it, but when I look in the last three years, I mean, I've worked with like, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, Daryl Hall, Fogel Sharkey. I mean, it just goes on and on, really. And all of them are, are people who, when I was younger, used to think were really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Is there someone you haven't worked with yet that you really want to? I mean, most people call you up and ask if they can work with you. Mm. You don't call them. No, I haven't rung anybody up yet. That's incredible. You mm. must feel real good about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, <coughs> it's not till I do interviews and things that I actually sort of think about it. Uh-huh. But, um, there's, yeah, but the thing, a lot of the people that I would have really liked to work with are... Uh, not here anymore. Oh, I see. You know, like the Hendrix kind of people or mm-hmm. um, a lot of early blues singers. Now, let's talk a little bit about your personal life. Is it hard to mm. keep your production ears off of songs that Bananarama releases? After <laughs> all, you are remar- uh, you are married to Siobhan. Not really. It's hard to keep my hands off of uh, Siobhan's lyric writing because oh. she writes uh, most of the lyrics in Bananarama and she wrote... Ones that I think are great, like Robert De Niro's Waiting and Cruel Summer and uh, I Heard a Rumor, all of these songs. And um, I sometimes I write some country songs with her and things like that. She's brilliant at writing uh, lyrics that are kind of simple but really to the point and with a little coy twist, you know. And uh, But no, it's, I mean, I, I don't really... Uh, take any notice of their records really what's annie up to right now she's uh, arriving in los angeles in about eight days time to meet me we're going vid- to uh, edit shame one of the tracks off the album mm-hmm. and the video suite and then we're going to do some uh, rehearsing to play some live tv in america we can do three numbers live on new year's eve on mtv and she's um just bought a new apartment in paris so that's her main base is to live in paris and when she's coming to America this time, uh, she bought a house next door to mine. Wherever I've bought a house in the world, really, Annie sort of seems to have bought one in the next street or next door. In L.A., it's actually next door. The land joins up. In Paris, I had an apartment in Saint-Germain, and she bought one not far from there. And in London, she bought one in the next street. How many homes do you have? Oh, sorry. <laughs> My gosh. Um, I call them homes, but they're kind of... Um, big adventure playground kind of workplaces because all of them have got like a recording studio. Now, you know, I've got this record label, Anxious Records, and I've got seven acts signed to it, and they're always there, you know, so yeah. my home's over, over, always overrun with about him. It's a crazy house, I can't even describe it. Like, for instance, usually I have like the three girls in Banana Armour sort of dancing around, working out something to a tape, <laughs> or learning how to do karate.
All right. Can you imagine you build a studio and there's a trio of women upstairs doing karate as part of training for the, probably their next video because Bananarama had a bunch of hits, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. That's great great I, I, I met him and talked to him and Annie uh, a couple of years before this, actually when they were doing a gig at the Kingswood Music Theater. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I asked him, I said, you know, he'd been working at that time with Mick and with Tom Petty and all these different people. I said, so... How is it you get to work with all of these really, really famous people? He said, because I know how to have a good time. He said, we just enjoy what we're doing. Yeah. It's not work. You know, you could tell by that interview that he's kind of a chill guy and that he he just seems to enjoy that stuff. And, you know, one of the things is, is all those artists were coming to him. Yes. Right? He didn't have to reach out to anybody. They were all coming to him. And, and it sounds, it's funny in that interview, he's talked about, yeah, Mick Jagger just dropped by. You know, or Mick Jagger's just over at my place, so he's hanging out. But, but then again, Christopher, I've talked to Mick Jagger, so, you know. Well, and we all know that. <laughs> okay, so great stuff. Dave Stewart in conversation with Marilyn Dennis from November of 1987. Anyway, uh, so that's almost it for this episode of Famous Lost Words. Right. Now we have the wisdom of Dave. I think Van Halen stretches across several categories and leaves his shadow there is you've got the heavy metal influences, you've got the hard rock influences, but what do you call something like going back to Jamie's crying on the first album? What is that, heavy metal cha-cha? I don't know. And I wrote it. <laughs> all, I, all I know is just exactly the same way I used to when we played at the little bars and so forth six, seven years ago. We make up a song, and I get up in the middle, I give it a few steps since I'm the only one in the band who can dance, and I go, well... I give it a four, because you can dance to it. I couldn't understand the words, though. All right, that's cool. Cut it. Oh, Dave. Oh, my. (laughs) That does it for this edition of Famous Lost Words. Don't forget, you can get caught up with past episodes on the iHeartRadio app and on iTunes. I'm Tom Jokic. And I'm Christopher Ward. Thanks to Adam Kars for producing the show. 